You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hello and welcome to TFM's local watering hole for all things outside of Star Trek. And I'm just one of your hosts, Matthew Rushing. And I'm so excited. I've assembled a crack team uh, and a flashback team, if you will. Uh, I'm so excited to have these guys as we'll be covering the brand new DC film, Blue Beetle. You might recognize both of my hosts from the podcast we did on The Flash. Scott McClellan, great Scott. It's Good to have you back. Really? You had to go there. It's your shirt, man. You're re- you're literally wearing a shirt that says Great Scott. It, what uh, well, what I, am I supposed I, to do? I, well, there was a reason for the shirt, man, that they can't see <laughs> because this is a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Great radio and here, I'm, Matt. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. I mean, we all have faces for radio. And so, I mean, not you guys, but I do. So I have hair for and radio. My- that's for certain. <laughs> Well, I'm very excited to have back with us as well is Casey Pettit, who uh, joins me on Literary Tracks, but uh, the accountant is in. That's right. And you know, I'm I'm happy to be here talking about a movie that I was shocked at how few of the Beatles were in it and the Blue Man Group. I thought we were looking for a, a, a mashup between them for Blue Beetle, but no such luck. Yeah, but Casey, ah. but all you need is love. Hmm. Well, that's true. Well, I, you know, that's weird because, you know, I thought that Tobias Funke was going to be in this episode uh, and that, you know, we might have um, some never nude scenes, but that didn't happen either. So I, you know, hmm. anyway, but before we dive into talking about the new DC film, uh, you can find us all over social media. Hit us up on Twitter at the 602 Club or on Instagram at the 602 Club TFM. We'd love to interact with you over there. Of course, you can also find us on Facebook with the entire network at facebook.com slash trek.fm. We're online at trek.fm. Please just subscribe wherever you're listening to your podcast, and you'll get all of the episodes here in the 602 Club feed. Also, uh, you can help us out by going over to Patreon at patreon.com slash trek.fm, becoming part of our team and making sure everything we're doing here on the network can keep coming to you. It's pretty expensive enterprise to do this, and we could definitely use your help. And again, that link is patreon.com slash trek.fm. Now, I wanted to ask both of you, because it's always interesting coming into a new comic book film, and I would say specifically a a comic book film where one of the heroes is definitely a lesser known hero. Um, I don't think that by saying that Blue Beetle is probably maybe a B minus to C level hero in the DC canon is is crazy. Um, so I'm kind of wondering where you guys come in with your character knowledge. You, you mean like when I saw the trailer with my family in front of the Super Mario Brothers movie and my 10-year-old turned to me and said, Daddy, is that a real character? <laughs> yes, son, it is. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yes. So, you know, uh, Scott, we'll start with you because, you know, I you do a DC podcast. And so, uh, you know, coming into this, were, was this a character that you've 
spent a lot of time with in the comics, have you know seen in a bunch of different shows, or was this one that's just not quite been on your radar as much? Oh, oh no, Blue Beetle's on my radar, and the only one that's not the the only one who's not. I mean, I know of him, but I haven't really read anything. Is the Golden Age Blue Beetle, Dan Garrett? That's the one that I have very little knowledge of. But Ted Cord, absolutely. Like, I mean, Ted Cord was in the Justice League when I was reading comic books as a kid. And I mean, Blue and Gold, you know, Ted Cord and Booster Gold, like their their friendship all the way back really to like the Justice League International days. And there's a fabulous arc in the Injustice 2 comic by uh, Tom Taylor because Jaime is is a playable character is one of the fighters in Injustice 2 and so in the setup there's this i mean made me cry like a like man tears if you ever read the Injustice 2 comic but you know starting with season 2 of Young Justice Jaime's been in the Young Justice cartoon as you know a member of the team so you know i i like Dan Garrett aside because he's a little bit He's a little bit before my time. Oh, no, I grew up about Ted Cord and uh, and Jaime. I was also one of those people who got really frustrated about how they kept on mentioning Cord in the Arrowverse, and then Cord never showed up in the Arrowverse. So that's that's the other thing. Plus the fact that Night Owl and Watchmen is Alan Moore's, you know, variation on uh, yes. Blue Beetle. So yes. yeah, which I've... you can tell in this movie. <laughs> oh, I know, and that's the funny thing is that I, I'm waiting for someone who doesn't know what they're talking about to try to say this is a ripoff of Watchmen, and I want to go, wait, wait. Yeah, and I didn't know anything. I I love that you brought up the Arrowverse because I think that's my only knowledge of Cord Industries at all. Is is that and since they never showed up i don't know anything else about it so this is really brand new to me so it's kind of exciting to see a new character and i was probably kind of like your kids got um is this is this a real comic book character is this one they invented but i i I see there's some comics out there (laughs) yeah this is um i'm i'm in the middle between both of you in the sense that i was aware of blue beetle uh i you know i read a bunch of the new 52 comics but the ones i was reading he wasn't prominent in and uh in fact i read through that series for a bunch of the characters um and uh then on into rebirth and then kind of quit i think after what was it uh uh, what was the death metal um was was my final uh, run and then uh, I've watched all of Young Justice so to me that's that's where this character comes from you know I'm most familiar with this character as presented uh, in Young Justice and you know the the kind of the basics of the story uh, you know with the, the scarab the the powers that he has and all of those kind of things to me that's where it comes from so I have a little bit of familiarity with the character but I'm I'm not as you know in depth as, as you Scott and I, I'm aware of the fact that there was the Ted Cord you know character before Jaime but I'm not as familiar really with how that necessarily, all works together as as much as you would be um and i can fill you in if you're interested like yeah sure i'd love to know because that that, i think it'd be interesting for everybody else too well once again you have to depend on which continuity you're talking about but uh my main knowledge comes from that post-crisis 
uh, continuity, the one that lasted from like 1986 to 2011 when the new 52 kicked in, because uh, Ted Cord was a was you know brought in from you know Charlton Comics and then you know put into the DC universe along with other characters like the Question and Peacemaker and all of them, and. What you have to know is that it was in the lead up to the Infinite Crisis event. That's when Max Lord killed Ted Cord. And that was like, and that's oh, what led right. to Wonder yes. Woman yep. Yep. breaking Mac, Max Lord's mm-hmm. neck right that's before, right. In, right before that's right. Infinite Crisis. Because it was during the Infinite, it's actually in one of the Infinite Crisis books, as in like the main you know, event book that Jaime was introduced. And the idea was that the Scarab was a layover from Dan Garrett as the golden age Blue Beetle back when the Scarab was magic. And then Infinite Crisis reintroduced the Scarab and then it went from being magic to being alien technology kind of like how alan scott green lantern his ring was magic in the golden age and then when you got hal jordan they turned it into an alien piece of technology mm-hmm. yeah 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 they've done that uh, a few times like you're you're mentioning there which is always interesting to me uh the way in which they'll go they the older comics specifically would go from from magic and then you know they would update it and it would be alien tech because you know magic is so silly um alien tech is so much more realistic uh but yeah no i i think that's really interesting because the reason i wanted to to kind of start there is is obviously to me in many ways you know this is a character i think coming into the film um feels almost like Spider-Man Homecoming and Iron Man had a baby. Uh and so it's like the it's like the blue iron spider kind of story we're getting. And the story itself, you know, with all of us having this varied character knowledge. How how did you guys feel like the story did in introducing this new character to the public who, you know, most people probably don't even have my knowledge of the character, let alone yours, Scott. And so how did you feel like they did, you know, introducing this backstory that they created and how it connects with Ted Cord and just kind of creating its own version of the character too, which is also very different than, say, like Young Justice, which, you know, Jaime is is a complete loner because his family has rejected him, whereas this movie is... He's so connected to his family. So how, how do you think, like, just introducing this character and, and the story ends up working? I'm really interested to hear what Casey has to say since he's, like, he's 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 about as general audience as we get on this panel. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I thought they did an okay job with it. I, you know, had an instant liking for Jaime and all of his family, really. We could see, at least from the movie's point of view, how close-knit this family was and how successful really that Jaime was being the first generation college graduate and everything you know as far as bringing cord and everything in it the the Ted cord stuff was um it was a little lost on me for a while throughout the movie cuz I, I didn't totally understand like the history of you know what everyone was looking for at the beginning or you know how the family the cord family worked as you know as far as 
who Ted Cord was versus Victoria Cord or the um the uh the niece or Ted's Ted's uh Ted's daughter Jenny Cord um some of that got a little convoluted but um you know overall you know as far as Jaime's family and everything is concerned you know I I actually thought they did a better job than maybe like Shazam did you know for me you know as far as like building this family and really getting to know the characters uh right away in the movie and kind of building a love for these characters early on in the movie so we care about what happens to them throughout i think for me i mean unfortunately i'm i'm the last person to ask because i'm able to look at this from the perspective of i know how this all went down in at least the era of comics that i read and this movie is completely and utterly different you know in in almost every aspect and i mean it, it it would be it would be old man yelling at cloud to to basically list off how different this is or how they're literally using aspects from a comic that was released in 2022 like to, just to give you an idea there's a there's a book called blue beetle graduation day it it's part of the uh post death metal you know dc universe which i've not been reading like I, like with matt death metal kind of marked my my end of you know reading slash collecting the monthlies as far as dc comics is concerned and so in that book that's when victoria cord was introduced and created victoria cord was not a character you know prior to uh, I was even looking up November of 2022. Same thing with Palmera City. In the comics, Jaime's from El Paso, Texas. You know, which they indicate in the movie because he lives on El Paso Street. So Palmera City wasn't even a location in the DC universe until 2022. So they, they were... They were... Uh, bringing in elements that i'm kind of curious now because the book was so recent was the book preloading information from the movie in and making it continuity because i feel like the movie's been in development for so long and the book coming out when it did it's like they knew what the movie was going to do and they were sort of going ahead and adjusting the blue beetle myth mythos to make the movie fit more because uh, because from everything else, like this is this is completely different than you know, Ma Blue Beetle, as you might say. Because because Ted doesn't have a family in the books, right? Yeah, I I feel like they do a pretty good job of introducing their version of the character. I think that the only thing here that I feel like could be done better. And I was thinking about this as, as both of you were talking. I almost feel like the movie should have opened with a Ted Cord stinger, like, you know, like cold open, where like how he gets lost in the wherever he's lost, um, which plays into the, the stinger of the film here. But to to give us some kind of sense of like who this character is a little bit and the fact that they existed in this world 
And just to give us a better sense, I think, of... of uh, because I think that's the one thing that I felt like the movie doesn't do a great job of is really helping us understand who this Ted character was because he really actually is pretty important to the setup of the rest of this film. He's he's important to the setup of Victoria. He's important to the setup of his daughter, Jenny. Um, and of course, you know, he was the inheritor of the Cord family fortune and basically pulled a you know, an Iron Man, which was like, he was like, no, we're not making weapons anymore. We're going to do it on a different direction. Um, and it just felt like that was all part of the story that would have been better seen, not just heard about a little bit, um, even if it was just in some kind of flashback or something to kind of give us a sense of, you know, who that character was. Um, because... He is important to the uh, the history of this series. Like he's the context a lot of this series, and and so I also feel like it would have helped as well in the fact that what they want to do with a sequel, obviously, it would have helped there too to have had a little bit better introduction of the Ted Cord character in this movie. And again, I'm not asking for a lot. I mean, like you could do a quick maybe minute you know, a flashback sequence or something where it just gives you a little taste of this character, who he was, you know, uh, again, maybe even him just getting lost and everybody assuming he's dead. Um, I think that would have been cool. Um, I think the credits do a little bit of that. They try to at least, but I don't think they do it well enough to really give us a sense of um, Ted as a character. But so. I think if you want to go into like how the sausage is made, I think part of that is because they weren't prepared to cast a Ted Court yet. You can tell that they did two things in this movie that tells you that they were giving themselves freedom for whatever they could possibly do in a sequel. One, they obviously did not want to actually have a Ted Court cast. Sure. And yeah. then secondly, Go when we eventually go to blue to the Ted Cord, you know, secret hideout. The the naked mannequin means they were leaving themselves open for them designing a oh yeah a, oh yeah a, a, a more recent costume yeah. yeah for him. So they weren't ready to commit sure to to a lot of Ted Cord stuff in yeah. this movie because this yeah. was Jaime's movie. And with the idea of if we get a sequel, we're going to have Ted Cord. It was more like we're going to cross that bridge when we get to it. Right. But there's ways to do those kind of things without really uh, making it clear who the person is. You know, I mean, there's plenty of movie tricks that you can do that you you never really know who the character is. And then, you know, I mean, I know their dream casting is Jason Sudeikis which would be pretty cool, I think. Um, but, you know, again, there's so many movie tricks you can you can use to hide the face of the person, you know, that you don't really want to, to be able to... Yeah, I, I mean, I, I get what you are saying, but I think that there's ways around that and still being able to do kind of what I'm asking for. And again, I'm not... What I'm asking for is just a little bit more context... Um, because I think it would help the story 
with the scarab and the cords themselves. Um, so I just have a little bit more there. Um, especially when, and I'll talk about this later when it comes to like the villain in Victoria. I think that would have been really helpful in all honesty, but that's just me. Well, one of the confusing things to me too was, especially once, you know, during the stinger at the end when they kind of reveal that Ted Court is alive somewhere, is if the scarab kind of embeds itself in Jaime assuming that it did the same thing with Ted and he's still alive. I mean, it, does he not have those powers anymore or is it, did he get him a different way? Like what? Oh, okay. And that's where I can jump and go. Ted never had the scarab. Yeah. Okay. Ted was just a schmuck in a costume. Dan was the one with the scarab. Okay. Ted just became a vigilante, just became a costume vigilante who was holding on to the scarab be from Dan. Gotcha. Yeah, that's kind of that's kind of the deal with Blue Beetle. Once again, think of Night Owl from Watchmen. Mm-hmm. You know, he's just a guy in a costume who makes stuff. I yeah, I mean he's basically a poor man's Batman. Yeah. That's really what he is. Um and so And they play no, off of that in the comics, by the way. Like he's not good at his job. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. Well and and again Casey just said, I think, kind of backs up what I'm asking for from the film is to have a little bit more because, yeah, that's in the dialogue, right, about him never having the scarab. But things are going by so fast. Yeah. And and, it, and and so it just makes it feel like it should be something um, that should be a little bit more prominent in the story because he is the context of the of everything that's happening here. The fact that, you know. Uh, he had access to the scarab. He was using it to try and help him create technology and tech, you know, with his own inventions and everything and, um, trying to mimic the things obviously he had seen done with the scarab itself, you know, as really embedded in you. Um, and so I think just all that would have, would have really helped the film. But I think overall the film does a pretty good job of, of, I think introducing a character uh, to the general public that they probably have zero understanding of. Um, And, you know, this, I think it's not only that, but it's their version of the character. Like you were saying, Scott, like this, this is completely different than almost every version of the character we've ever seen in the comics. They've really created their own, which I have no problem with. You know, you should make your own version of the character that way. You're not beholden to any comics, right? But you can just make great allusions to them, as as I think the greatest comic book movies actually do. Um, and so, but uh, this movie also has a lot of people in it, um, especially our main cast member, uh, Jolo, who plays Jaime. You know, he was in Cobra Kai, but for most people, he's probably not a household name, and he is our lead character here. And I wanted to to hear you how you guys thought that he held up this film, because really it, it rests on his performance, because you have to feel what he's going through um, and his struggle, which is, you know, being the first person in his family to go to college, trying to figure out what his place in the world is, what his purpose in the world is, especially as he kind of feels torn between, 
this desire to kind of get out of where he's from, but also honor where he's from. And so how how do you feel like he pulls this off? I think he does. I mean, in my opinion, the movie rests on his shoulders. And when the movie is successful, it's because of him. And 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 by extension, the cast of his family. Like, that is where the movie succeeds, in my opinion. And Sholo is the one who is like, I like you. Like, you are a good Jaime. You know, you're you're fun to watch. You're likable. You you do you do the movie proud. It, I mean, for me personally, it's when the movie's not dealing with him that it is not as not as successful. If I'm going to kind of tip my hat to you know some thoughts later on about the film, but but for Sholo, no, no, he's he's he he, and then by extension, the the actors cast as his family. They're what you come to watch in this movie. Yeah. I don't know if I can add much more to that, but yeah, he's he had a big job, you know, introducing a brand new character that, you know, most of, you know, me as the representative of the general public, you know, we don't know about this character. And so, you know, having someone like him come in, um, you know, being unfamiliar with this work, I mean, he did a great job. You know, we've seen in a lot of the DC movies and really the Marvel movies, you know they're they're casting a list actors you know as our superheroes and just to to bring in a a fairly you know relative unknown actor here uh to play this part i mean i think he knocked it out of the park he's you know like you said scott he's likable um you know he's they they cast a great family around him but i i completely agree that his his scenes were the ones that i was drawn to and um you know, I, I wanted to see more, you know, of what he could do, you know, makes me excited to see where, where this character goes and where they go with these movies. Um, and, and a, a lot of it because of him, he, he does the comedy. Well, he does the drama. Well, the fights, everything. I, I thought he was, he was very good in this. Yeah. I think that he's natural. I think that's the best thing that I can say about him. And I mean that in the sincerest form, uh, you know, it, he's such a natural actor in the role that he's been cast. I think he plays that age perfectly. I think he plays the struggle perfectly. Um, you know, his his desire to be there for his family, but also try and make something of himself the expectations he's put on himself to try and be the one that lifts his family out of the place that they've been, um, you know, financially, uh, you know, you can feel the weight on his shoulders. Uh, I think, you know, like you mentioned, Casey, he's got the comedy down, but I think more importantly, what he has down is the, uh, the drama aspect that he needs, especially I think at the end uh, during the fight sequence, when he just lets loose with rage um, you know, all of it, I felt like he he's the heart and soul of this film. And, and yes, it's about him being surrounded by his family. And I think that's a big part of it, too. But like you said, Scott, I think the movie is most successful when he's completely the focus and everybody's kind of revolving around him. Um, I think uh, I and I wanted to ask you this question, because obviously his family and the, that cast is so important to the rest of this film working 
do they all work for you? Do you all feel like they're on the same level as as Jolo here, or are any of them, you know, uh, missing the mark in any way? I think the f- family nails it in a way that when they're being kind of cutesy and funny and silly, like with each other, like like my favorite scene with them is right after the scarab is activated for the first time and and the sister mentions the whole connection to the telenovela again and the whole family goes oh yeah 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 like like they're all agreeing <laughs> with the with the metaphor and they're all like adding to it i'm like Oh my oh my god. Like like it's just it's just so funny watching like when the when the whole family's in on the joke and they're all like spitballing off each other. I like that. Now, individual family members when they're kind of separated from the group maybe don't work for me as much, but as a unit, I felt like they were just all on target when you when they're playing as a family unit. Yeah, agreed. Like they try to like give each of the characters kind of their moment. Obviously, Nana is probably going to go down in history with one of the craziest moments of the film and the the most question marks about her past. But um, you know, I almost feel like you know George Lopez is funny and everything, but every once in a while during the movie, they they took a little far with him and um, tried to play the comic relief a little too much. And, you know, could have toned it down and I think it would have still worked. Um, and, and I, I would have to actually say that the person who worked the least for me, although she's not exactly part of the family, but it was Jenny Cord. Um, it, she felt a little shoehorned into the family, which I mean, she kind of was, I guess, was part of the plot, but, um, you know, she worked well with Jaime, but, um, you know, I, I wanted to see more of the actual, you know, nuclear family together, you know, the the mom and the dad, the sister and uncle. Yeah. And I think part of that, Casey, for me was I also didn't feel like that the actress playing Ginny was the strongest. Yeah. And, a little flat. And, a little flat. But also, let's be honest, the character was a little flat. Well, it yeah. was kind yeah. of one of the things where it's like she wasn't given much to work with as a character. And th- so I, I'm just trying to. F- I guess if I'm trying to be fair to the actor, I'm trying to figure out was it a combination of not great writing for the character and the actor not being the strongest, or was it she just couldn't elevate the material that she was given? Like, mm-hmm. that's a question mark I have, but I just wasn't that interested in Ginny as a character. Okay. Wow. Interesting. Um, so. I I think that for the most part, uh, the family is good. Um, I am right there with you, Casey. I think that George Lopez, unfortunately, uh, is way over the top too many times in the film. I think that the director needed to tone him down, um, and it really would have helped the movie. Uh, I get what they're going for with the entire family and, and the way the interactions all happen. But I think even sometimes just with the entire family together, it's a little bit too silly. Um, you know, like their reactions don't seem real. They seem like they're being scripted. 
you know, like this isn't the reaction that normal people would have. Um, and so I also feel like I really, unfortunately, did not enjoy the performance for the sister. Um, I thought she was also very over the top and just didn't feel realistic at all. Um, and a lot of it because of just I mean, like the whole scene of her going to the bathroom in their house was insane and stupid. It made her look like an idiot. Um, nobody in her position would do that. Because you know that that is completely unacceptable. No, but um, though, I say I'm going to completely disagree with you on that because she didn't care. Like that's the point of her character. But that, I get her not caring, but that's unrealistic. Nobody no, it's in not. Her no, position. I know people who would no. do that. See, that's the no. thing. I'm going to completely put my foot down and disagree with you. I know yeah. it's not acceptable, but she's the character who doesn't care. Oh, like oh. that. What's okay. acceptable? I mean, I mean that's, that's fine if she. Uh, okay. Let me put it this way. If she doesn't care, then it's no wonder her life is going nowhere because her not caring is is a, is why her life is not going anywhere. It's in the crapper, literally. You know, she doesn't want to go to college. She doesn't want to really do anything with her life and she doesn't really care what other people think. And so like that's I, I don't know. Maybe you're right. But I just I didn't buy it and I didn't enjoy the performance very much for the most part because of that. Her best scene was actually the one where she's on the roof with her brother and they're just having a normal kind of conversation. I thought that was the best part. But otherwise, I just I didn't I just didn't I didn't enjoy it. Um, Okay, but but I think that's that's the line, though. You don't have to enjoy it, but but you could acknowledge it. But but that's real. But I also. Yeah, I I get what you're saying, Scott, but it's not just that I don't enjoy it. But I also think that the the way that the character is portrayed, she's almost basically played as being a hero for being an fu type of character. Like I don't care what you think, but I don't think that makes her heroic. I think that makes her somebody who just she's in the same place as is Jaime is, which is. He doesn't even know what he wants to do. He doesn't know what his purpose in the world is. And they're two sides of, a, of the same coin. And I feel like Jaime is at least working diligently to try and make something of his life. She's not. And so I think I get all of that. I just it's it's I, I, I just don't. I, I wish that the movie had done a better job of showing that I think Jaime's way of trying to handle that frustration is a a way that's least constructive. I think hers feels destructive and the movie didn't do a good enough job of showing that to me that one way is better than the other because one way is at least making an attempt to find a way forward. Had they even introduced Victoria as kind of a bad guy yet? Yes, they had. Okay. I I, I was trying to think in the bathroom scene if like they'd already kind of shown her as the villain. Cause I was thinking it, it came a little early for that too, but 
No, because Victoria had already been shown, you know, in the mountains looking for the scarab. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and remember, yeah. she – and I, I love this. There's a comment about there's Cruella Kardashian. <laughs> I thought, yeah. really thought that line was that's, good. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so you, you've already gotten that introduction. And she goes into the bathroom, and it's while she's in the bathroom that then we get the whole Victoria dressing down of, mm-hmm. of Jenny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Now, I – it's interesting. I liked Jenny, but I think that the problem was is that, in all honesty, that the writing for the character just did not give her quite enough to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- I think that's the biggest issue. I mean, I I thought the actress was fine. I thought the character actually worked, especially in the sense of the way in which she. Also mirrors, you know, uh, Jaime of him trying to find his way. She's also trying to do the same thing. Um, She's also dealing with a lot of trauma from, you know, the life that she had and losing her father and her mother, all of that kind of stuff. Um, And, you know, I I think what really needed to happen, she just needed to be given more to do. Yeah. Um, And that would have really made all the difference. Um, So I I think that's where I fall with y'all's criticisms there. Um, I can see why you feel that way. I just feel like, yeah, we just we needed to write a couple more scenes with her and allow her to have a little bit more um, heart to heart moments, maybe with Jaime or somebody else so that you could really, you know, get that character better. Um, Because obviously, too, she's she's going to be hugely important as we move forward. Um, And so uh, I do I'm really interested to see what you guys think of the villains. And I have to say specifically Susan Sarandon as Victoria Cord because when I read that Sharon Stone was actually in talks earlier uh, to play the villain of Victoria, and at that point she was going to be the wife of Ted Cord, an original creation, I was like, dang it, they absolutely missed what they should have done in this film. I have very strong feelings. I'm not sure if Casey should go first before I have my strong feelings <laughs> about about that. Yeah, I um, you know, again, kind of from the the general public view, I really liked her in this movie. She was, um, you know, if it was played by a man, it'd be a mustache twirling, you know, villain. But um, you know, she she was kind of the embodiment of evil and kind of, um, uh, I can't think of the word, but, um, you know, she, the jealousy that she had, even that, that her brother was the one that inherited all of her family's, um, fortune. And that once he died, she finally got to take over the business and, you know, take, take these weapons to the next level and everything. And her kind of, you know, you could kind of see where her character was going as far as, um, you know, Susan Sarandon, I guess, said that Victoria represents a theme of imperialism in the name of democracy. And you can kind of see that in her character a little bit, but ultimately she just wants the power. And um, I don't even know if she's even thought far enough ahead to, you know, that she wants to rule the world, but she wants to, you know, kind of have the iron fist that's going to do that. Um, and you know, I, I just thought she was as over the top as she needed to be for something like this, but still, you know, kind of a scary villain and thought she did a great job. I think Sharon Stone would have been 
would have been great too in that story element, but I I I did enjoy what we got. I'm sorry, Casey. Yeah, I am. I'm, I'm ready. Complete. I'm, I'm <laughs> the complete opposite spectrum. I thought Susan Sarandon was there to collect a paycheck. Like her line delivery, I felt was just entirely uninspired. On top of the fact that the way her character was written was so bland and cliche as the, you know, she she's basically just a female version of, uh, oh, I am blanking on the name of Jeff Bridges from the first Iron Man movie. I mean, it, it. Yeah, was, except that he was better. No, I. I love Jeff Bridges <laughs> in the first Iron Man movie. That's my problem is I felt like this movie, there were elements of this movie that I felt like were just trying to copy the homework of the first Iron Man movie and uh, apparently didn't have enough time to actually copy it and, well. And so I I was unimpressed head to toe when it came to Susan Sarandon as Victoria Cord. I, I, I felt like she was... Just so superficial, surface level, cliche, stereotypical. I I had expected more. And I mean, yes, I've seen Catwoman. I, I know what happens when you can put Sharon Stone in a badly written <laughs> villainous role. But still, the idea of making her, you know, Ted's widow, you know, quote unquote, you know, I don't know. That might have been more interesting to me, depending on how it's written, of course, because they could have written her just as stereotypical and cliche. Um, but and I'd be very interested to know, like, was Jenny still a character? So, like, would there have been a little bit more animosity between, like, a mother and a daughter? Because the aunt niece thing, just whatever. I, I, I'm, I wasn't invested. So... Yeah, not th- big O thumbs down for me when it came to Victoria Cord. Yeah, it's interesting. Sorry, because Casey. That's, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Scott, you and I uh, and this one are in complete and utter agreement. I think Susan Sarandon is absolutely the worst part of this film. And it's one of the things that drags it down star wise for me terribly because she's a terrible villain. Um, I think. Even them trying to do this thing with her where, oh, I was overlooked for my brother, for the male. It's like, no, the reason you were overlooked is because your brother was a better person than you. Like, you were obviously a terrible person and have been for your entire life, and everybody can tell that. So that's why they didn't leave the company to you. It has nothing to do with whether or not you're female or not. So one, like, that made me super mad because it didn't even work. But I feel like if you had had Sharon Stone in there as the, the widow, you could find a way to write that in a way where that makes more sense. Oh, I was passed up because they wanted, you know, the male heir of the family instead of the the poor widow. And you could really play that like victimhoodness there without making her just feel like, you know, she's evil. Everybody knows she's evil. And that's literally why she didn't get the job, because what she would do with the company is terrible compared to what, you know, Ted was going to do with the company. Um, and so I just think, um, she, like, she completely phones it in 
and she's so over the top every single moment she's on screen. It's like, where's the nuance? Like, she could have absolutely played this character with a lot of nuance. Because she can. We have a filmography. She can. (laughs) Yes, I've seen Susan Sarandon in plenty of roles where she can play nuance and do that well. Um, She just plays it so over the top that I think she ruins it. Whereas I think um, Carapax is an incredibly interesting villain because, you know, we get that backstory for him. But I wanted more. That was my problem. Yes. I I wanted more for, like, obviously, when you're going with this theme of imperialism, there's something there about Guatemala and the Reagan years and, you know, the, 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 the... the fight against communism and how that ended up affecting all these countries where the fights were happening. It's like, delve into that. Like, give me something there. And he was just so overlooked and he had the interesting backstory. Yeah. They could have even just sprinkled it in throughout the movie too. Like I understand there was like a, you know, this point where his memory comes back and he finally remembers, you know, how he became who he is. But like if, if they had almost been sprinkling that throughout the movie had Jaime interacting with him more so that the ending of the movie was a little bit more um, earned. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's great that he, you know, ultimately sacrifices himself, but at that that point he didn't have a whole lot of choice. I mean, he was, you know, not even half a man anymore. He was just this machine. And um, so you're saying he's more machine now than man. (laughs) Exactly. Twisted and evil. Exactly. All the pins <laughs> on your on a certain point of view. A certain point of view. <laughs> I think both of you are, are are so right on target with this one. I think you know. Now, I will say one of the things I think that they did is um, the same thing that Iron Man did. Right? It used uh, the War on Terror, right, uh, as kind of a, a basis for its storyline, but it doesn't get too in the weeds with that, right? Uh, I think with Carapax and using that period of the 80s and everything was 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 good. But I think not getting too in the weeds with that is the right way to go. But I do think both of you are 100% right that there are absolutely ways for us to find some way to sprinkle in more of this character's story um, and make it mean more when they have their big battle and he makes the turn, right? Um, instead of it being right at the end so that when he does make his turn in that big battle, it it doesn't feel like it's just so sudden, but it's more of a thing that's continued to kind of build throughout the entire film so that like this is the culmination of him realizing that what he's about to do to Jaime is the same thing that he's had done to him by Victoria this whole time. And so I think like building that story more with him um, would have been really special. And I think in the end, what that is, is that's an unfortunate script thing. Mm. I think that's where the, 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 the people that are doing the scripting here They needed to say, okay, this is great, but we need to go back in and find a way to punch up this person's story so that by the time we get to that end moment, 
it feels more earned. Well, his memory coming back at the end was kind of the deus ex machina of this story, like, because, you know, we knew that Jaime wasn't probably going to be killing anybody. I mean, he's been saying the whole time, no killing, no killing. But Victoria had to go in some way. And there was, you know, a lot of emotion throughout this movie, and especially at the end. And had they built up Carapax's story more, we would have probably cared about his death a little bit, you know, rather than, okay, he's he's a good a good guy now, I guess, and he's killing the villain. Well, that's over. You know, we, we could have actually had another emotional scene, you know, of, uh, you know, him kind of saving the day at the end there when, in reality, he just kind of ended the fight and uh, the movie, pretty much. Well, also, how about establishing the fact that he had memory loss in the first place? Well, yeah, that was part. Yes. That was part yeah. of the Deus Ex yes. Machina. Yep. It wasn't until the Scarab. Are you saying it's Deus Ex Memory? <laughs> I'm just going to leave that one alone, Matt. <laughs> but but once again, it's like, oh, here's a plot point that you didn't even know existed that we're going to introduce right now because the Scarab yes. is going to reveal yes. that. Yes, it was like. It's almost like while the Scarab is letting Jaime know what's going on, that's the first time you realize, oh, Carapax doesn't know this. Like, this has been wiped or suppressed or something. And it's mm-hmm. like, well, you didn't tell us that or hint at it or do anything to make that yeah, it's a, great a part of the film. Yeah. Or part of his character up to this point. Yeah. It's a great point. What did you guys think, uh, you know, um, this movie we talked about about the the casting of the family, but this whole movie is about family and that love, support from a family is a superpower and not a weakness. So it's not um, a Fast and Furious movie. It's I got not a, a Fast and the Fur- oh, Furious okay. movie, but it's about family. Uh, and in in that way, it kind of reminded me a lot of of the same themes that you got in Miss Marvel. Uh, and uh, the way that it kind of celebrated the beauty of the nuclear family and extended family, how important that is in our lives and can be. And so, uh, you know, did you think that they were able to bring that home with this film? Yes, because that's actually where I think the film was successful. Like, when I enjoyed this movie, was that. was when they were doing that. It feels like the first Shazam movie. Like that, that's my best mm-hmm. connection yeah. is now in the first Shazam movie, it's about that found family. It's about what makes a family in this one. It's just that what makes a family is his actual like flesh and blood. But like, right. that's what I loved about the first Shazam movie. And I lamented about Shazam 2 because Shazam 2 lost that. And so Blue Beetle nails that. Yep. Like, when we get to my ratings, it's actually what improves the movie for me is the family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. the family is like what all of the emotion in this movie hangs on. And I think they were trying to, I think one of the failings of the family story is kind of in in the the Cord family, since we they brushed over the cord stuff a little too much, I think, but like with, with Jaime's family, um, 
just every time we saw them, we saw how close they were and how much closer they were becoming. Um, and, you know, to culminate in that final scene where they were finally able to cry uh, about the father's death. And, you know, that was, that was an earned part of the movie. I felt where they, they had, it, I'm maybe not so much in the, the uh, little afterlife image that he saw of his father, I guess, but, you know, at least, you know, what brought their family together was the family and the love that they had for each other, including those they'd lost. And, um, I, I just thought that was, you know, really, um, special part of this movie and, uh, would fit well into any movie, not just a superhero movie, but I thought they, they did fit it in well here. And yeah. Yeah. You, you mean the Jonathan Kent moment? Yeah, yeah yes, that's actually. basically what it is from PBS. <laughs> I, I, yeah, that that was one of those references. It's like, okay, so this is this is um, a little Superman seventy eight and a little Batman v Superman of Jonathan Kent, like mixed in, like, and, and I'll get into that later because that's that's another one of my criticisms about the film. Yeah, I think um, the the thing that both of you have said, uh, I I don't I can't add too much to that, but I I think the thing I and and I'm right there with you, Scott. I think maybe a, a whole star of this film. And even with my criticisms of some of the things I said about the family characters, um, the overall of being willing to celebrate the beauty that is true family of the nuclear family, extended family, and how important that can be in our lives, what their support, what their unconditional love can do for a person um, was pretty awesome. Uh, and, you know, it's very rare, especially in superhero films, where we celebrate the nuclear and extended family. Just barely ever happens in a in a Because usually film. they're dead in some way. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Or, yeah, or, or, you know, they're adopted by somebody else or, you know, whatever. In fact, you know, I think one of the very few films that it did this well, and to bring it all the way back, because you, you mentioned the, the Jonathan Kent moment, basically, we have here with Jaime and his father— you know, Man of Steel is that way, right? Uh, in some ways, because Clark is their son for all intents and purposes. Um, and, you know, um, but yeah, we just don't really get a lot of films, especially in superhero genre, that actually celebrate family. And that's, you know, Miss Marvel did that. And I think this film does that and it does it really well. And I appreciate them doing that. Um and I think that it's something that we actually kind of need to see more of in all sorts of films. Uh, and so um, we've got a few other things I want to talk to you guys about. And, and one of them is because this is a superhero film, the effects and the action and, you know, what the suit looks like and all that stuff play a huge part in this movie. Um, and so, of course, in, as well, Scott, you already alluded to the fact this also mirrors Man of Steel in a couple of ways, specifically in that end battle. Um, so how does all of this work for you? Do you feel like that they did a good job of, of bringing this to life, especially since one of the biggest criticisms against The Flash is how crappy it looked? I would say this one probably didn't fare a whole lot better for me. I, and I think it was I didn't really notice it as much in the flash because I wasn't looking for it. And I, I think that I kind of was a little bit more in this one. And there was, there was a lot of scenes where um, it's, it's almost like watching, you know, an older movie that is so clearly shot against a blue screen or green screen. There, there was a few of those in this one for me, um, you know, and 
Yeah. So I, yeah, <laughs> that it took me out of it a little bit, uh, you know, a few different times. See, I wasn't taken out at all. I mean, I go back to the fact that this was supposed to be a streaming movie. This was supposed to be on HBO oh. Max. And once the Warner Brothers Discovery merger happened and Zavzlov has definitely made his feelings known about the idea of making movies directly for streaming, I, I, I was actually impressed by how this movie looked. And I thought the effects looked good. I mean, I've always felt that since the first trailer. Um, but I also appreciate the fact that the suit was practical. You know, that they actually had Jaime wearing an actual costume that they would then later augment with visual effects for, like, you know, the you know, the pincers in the back or the stuff that lights up. But I lo- I appreciate the fact that he's wearing an actual suit, kind of like where I go back to, like, Iron Man 1, and at least Downey's wearing an actual suit. It wasn't when it all became CGI, you know, pajama with dots later on in the MCU. So... I don't have any problem with uh, the visual effects themselves. You know, I can, you know, I, I can talk about how I just felt like action beats or moments felt like derivative homages or homework copies of a multitude of other superhero films. And this is me being you know, old man yelling at cloud because I've just seen so many like it, it. It's like you see so many, you start to notice the seams. It's like, Oh, that's Spider-Man. That's Tobey Maguire, Spider-Man. That's man of steel. That's Iron Man one. That's Iron Man two. You know, I just, like I said, but as far as the visual effects, you know, themselves, I had no issues whatsoever. I think the the thing that this movie did successfully for me in the VFX department and the action was that it's consistent. Yes. It's not great, but it's consistent. And consistency means a lot because it means that the movie gives you what it is and then it's not pulling you out by – you know, doing something where it's like, oh, one shot looks amazing and then the next shot looks shoddy. Uh, and so I think that's the thing that this movie really has going for. I think they also did a great job of, in a lot of ways, kind of, there there aren't a ton of incredibly over-the-top action sequences in this film. I think they limit them. Uh, part of that probably has to do with the fact of what you mentioned, Scott. This was supposed to be an HBO Max movie. Therefore, they would not have had the money for that in the first place. And then once they were kind of, I think, given the budget for, uh, you know, a theatrical release, I, I feel like they spent the money well because I think the movie looks, to me, it looks way better than The Flash did. And part of that is in its consistency. And I think, too, it never looked plasticky. You know, like Flash had this weird plasticky look. Uh, and this movie doesn't really have that uh, that I could see. Now, I I also, though, I can see what you're saying, Scott, in the sense that some of this does feel maybe derivative. Um. And I think this is the problem of trying to do too many superhero things in general. All like, you know, we've had so many superhero things in the last 20 years now 
it's very hard to be original at this point. It's it's kind of like I think we're at that point where um you know the uh, unfortunately, you know the western died out because we had we killed it because we did too many of them. Uh I think we're at that point in some ways with superheroes where you just need to be very intentional and then you have to try and be as original as possible and you know I this is this movie somewhere in the middle. I'm not really criticizing it overly. You know, I actually thought that the way in which they mirrored uh, the very first DCE movie, DCEU movie with Man of Steel uh, and having Jaime basically have a very uh, Clark Kent reaction uh, to, you know, his family being attacked, um, the loss of, of his father uh, was nice. Like, it's like the guy cared enough to put in an homage to a movie that I love, right? Um, and I, I feel like that the director actually did that as a loving homage to Snyder's film. And so I appreciate that. Um, you know, so, you know, I, I'm, I, I don't think it's the best thing I've ever seen. But again, to me, like it gets points for being consistently decent, which, you know, is better than most Marvel films have been recently, except for uh, Guardians 3, which I thought the, the special effects in that were astounding um, for the most part. And, you know, but yeah, I mean, I can't remember the last DC movie I saw where I thought the the the, the, the effects were decent. Um, so, I mean, because, you know, we all saw Shazam 2, so... Um, the less said about that, the better. Um, Bobby Krillick does the score here. We have a brand new hero. You're hoping for maybe some kind of theme, possibly, that can set this hero apart. What did you guys think? Uh, I didn't... The I don't... This wasn't a movie. I felt this is another one of those cases, and I, I don't know if we've talked about it on this show maybe matt you and i have talked about this this wasn't a score that was going for themes this was the this was a score that was going for a vibe and so this movie had such an 80s flavor in so many ways I joke that it got it was more 80s than Wonder Woman 1984 that was literally supposed to be set in the 80s. So points to that, that the score sounded like the 80s. Palmera City is clearly to me the DC Universe's version of Miami. So I was getting like Miami Vice vibes from this movie. You know, the idea that I, I'm 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 inferring that Ted Cord was supposed to be operating during the 80s, like he would have been Blue Beetle during the 80s, and that kind of leads to like the whole like the fact that when they go to Court Estates, you know, it's a it's like a windbreaker suit you know, jumpsuit that, that Ginny gives Jaime to wear. So I thought the music just felt like it fit the movie it was in. The movie had an 80s vibe to it. The color scheme, the city, you know, and, and, and it felt like a, and it felt like a superhero movie from the 80s or the 90s. And I thought the score just matched that. Was it anything remarkable no 
but it serviced the movie it was in and the vibe that the director was going for. So it gets points for that. Yeah, I agree completely with that. Like, and I, I love that style of music. I mean, synth wave right now for me is one of my favorite styles of music. And so when I kind of heard a lot of that synth stuff, you know, uh, during the movie, I immediately downloaded the soundtrack and I was listening to it today while I was working. And, you know, there's a, there's a handful of repeating, um, motifs, I guess, during the score, you know, kind of three or four note, um, thing that starts the movie off but it's so ominous that it you can't really call it like blue beetles theme because it's just so it's it's almost more the the chord theme or victoria chords theme really um if if anything but i you know i, I was a little confused at first when i heard the music so i thought is this set in the 80s because it didn't feel like it but it kind of like you said scott it kind of looked you know like it could be something like that and then the tracksuit comes in and even even the lair where they went, it was you know super colorful with the blue and the purple and everything. You know, it was uh, you you can't really get more you know eighties uh, you know rave than that, I guess. But um, I enjoyed it. Yeah, it fit the movie. You know, you're not like necessarily tapping your toe to you know the actual score. Um, you know, or coming out humming the theme or anything like that. But you know, I thought it worked for the movie, and um, you know, it's no you know, Batman 89, Danny Elfman score, but it, it worked for this one. I, uh, I think the score is, eh, I don't really, I mean, it's fine for the film, I guess. Um, but it even doesn't, I, to me, it didn't really do anything for the film. And I really, uh, I'm sorry, but I'm always going to feel like superheroes, especially if you're introducing them in a new film, they deserve their own theme. Uh, it's one of the places where Marvel has done a terrible job for the most part. There, there are a few exceptions, uh, you know, like Captain America has his own theme and things like that. But you could have done a really cool theme um, and, and you could have done it in an 80s vibe here. Uh, but they just don't really give you anything to hang your hat on. And in all honesty, too, music can make such an incredible difference in how you perceive a, a scene in a film. I mean, you know, take the score out of Star Wars. Take the score out of anything that John Williams has done, right? or James Horner, or, you know, Jerry Goldsmith, or these giants of, of cinema composing, and most of their films would probably fall flat without their score. And to me, this movie, if it could have probably had a whole maybe half star more if you had just given it a score that really punched up all the emotional moments had that theme that would come on whenever Blue Beetle finally does something really heroic, like when he really becomes the hero at the end, to have that theme, like, fully fleshed out. The same way, you know, like uh, Man of Steel did, right? We didn't hear the full theme until the very end of the film where that character is who he is. You know, this movie could have done the same thing, um, and I think it would have been a great way to... Uh, you know, you could have been slowly kind of building towards that so that by the time you got to the end of the movie, that theme just bursts into life and it's just like, whoa. The perfect but, example of that is Casino Royale. 
by the way. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Because there, there's a theme where mm-hmm. David Arnold yep. has beautiful music, yep. but you literally do not hear the James Bond theme until the end credits. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, and they've been using the theme that Chris Cornell had created as as symphonic work that David Arnold had worked in. But then he's building that whole time, like you said, to the James Bond theme. Uh, so no, hundred percent agree with you. I mean, it, that's that's a place where you just really, I think, could have uh, brought this movie to a different level with that type of thematic work in the score. Um, DC's got to be careful with that, though, because of uh, I, I feel like Wonder Woman is the exact opposite of what you guys were just talking about. You know, with Bond, where I, I feel like the Wonder Woman theme is so overused. Like you know, we see it, and every time she shows up in the Flash, or you know. Um, I think it was in Justice League that uh, just every time she showed up on the screen was it, but uh, I I liked it the first time I heard it, and I can't really stand that one. Well, so it's about careful. how you use. Well, I think you got to be careful, but you also have to know how to use it. I mean that that theme has a tone, has a has a has a tone to it that doesn't just work for. Oh, the characters on screen play the music. Right. You know, I, I, for me, the more egregious use was the way it was used in Shazam Fear of the Gods. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah, that, yeah. Drove, that drove me up the mm-hmm. wall, yeah. the way it was used in that movie. The way it was used in Flash, at least kind of at least it kind of worked for me, you know, in this in the moment it was being used. But but a character's theme, it, it, it's why you've got to have different musical motifs. I like I think about. Like even the the Elfman Batman score, there's different musical motifs that they use. Like it's not just always dun dun dun, dun. you know. <laughs> there's the dun 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 dun. Like that theme has got levels and layers that, depending on the mood of the scene, there's music that works with it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Hundred percent. Um, quickly for you guys. How do you feel about where this movie sits? Because, you know, we know the DCEU is ending. uh, The DCU is coming. And there are some references in this movie to different heroes. But did you feel like this basically sits in a place where it feels like it could be a part of any DC universe and it doesn't really matter? Or did you feel like so that this is maybe helping like bridge the gap or i mean how how do you guys feel like that because in all honesty and we all know uh, the dc has just been an absolute train wreck and what it's trying to do anyway and so does because of all that confusion does this movie basically stand enough on its own for you not to care where it sits that because this is this is what the movie does well it just exists in a dc universe Mm-hmm. It it is it is generic enough in its references that it doesn't try to lock itself down. I, I was in a, I was having a discussion on another review, and I think this is perfect. this is Blue Beetle's movie. It doesn't matter which DC mm-hmm. universes it's in; it's just in the DC universe. You know, Flash is in Central City, right. Superman's in Metropolis, Batman's in Gotham City. That's that. That's all you need. Like, like the movie didn't need 
And I think to the movie's benefit, it doesn't try to make itself exist mm-hmm. in a specific universe. It just exists in a DC universe. Yeah, it was nice that they just gave passing references to Superman, to Batman. We didn't lay it on thick. It was just kind of... I missed the Batman reference. My wife mentioned it to me afterwards. I caught the Superman one. But yeah, like it could sit anywhere. It could sit nowhere. It 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 doesn't really matter to me. I, I read somewhere that there's a chance that this movie could get retconned into the DCU and that this is the first DCU character, but not the first DCU movie, which is beyond confusing. But for me, like like I said, it could be here, there, anywhere, or nowhere. It, it's just, you know, it was a, a fine movie to be on its own. And And I think that goes to it being a product of it originally being a streaming movie. It, it needed yeah, yeah. to be able to just be a thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I agree with you both. I think I, I honestly don't have anything to add to that. Uh, I think this is the best you could hope for with what you have to work with. So in, in that front. Um, with the uh, end credit scene and um, the claymation where one. that kind of leaves us, uh, my question to to both of you is you know do you want more uh blue beetle does that make you excited does this movie leave you in a place where you're like yeah i'd love to have another blue beetle film not knowing anything about like ted cord just from the little that we got i want more blue beetle because of jaime and his family like the that credit scene didn't really do you know, much for me. I mean, you know, it set it up good for a sequel, but I've seen so many times um, throughout various superhero movies where they try to set up something during the end credits or even during the movie for a sequel and nothing ever comes from it. So I could take it or leave it for what they're trying to set up. I would just like to see Jaime and his family back. I'm not going to say it makes me excited because the, the movie itself isn't quote exciting to me, but if they made another one, would I watch it? Yes. You know, I, because of what I know about the character, in my fanboy head, I could write a lot of various scenarios that I would love for them to approach with a sequel. And I'll go ahead and throw one of them out there right now. I mean, one of the biggest things about Ted Kord's Blue Beetle is his friendship with Booster Gold. And since it was announced as part of Chapter 1 of James Gunn's DCU that there was going to be a Booster Gold series, I mean, I would love for the Ted Cord is lost to be kind of like a he's lost in time or something because that would tie in so well with, you know, Booster Gold the Time Traveler. You know, and once again, that's just me knowing something about the character and really the crux of the Ted Cord character emotionally, relationship wise in the DC comics is his friendship with Booster. Because he doesn't have a family. He just has his buddy. And I would love to be able to see that friendship explored because that's just fun the two of them together. It's why it's called blue and gold. Like there's literally like a ship. uh, There's a ship name for them. 
<laughs> and I would love to see that. I would love to see that get played with in the future. Yeah, I, I am at the point where I don't care about end credit sequences anymore because so much of the of what they're trying to do never gets to play out, especially in the DC fandom. Uh, and so if they follow up in this, great. Uh, you know, uh, if they don't follow up with this, okay. You know, I'll understand why too. Um, is it an interesting story thread to pull on though? Uh, and, and is it like, am I somewhat intrigued as to the thought process of, you know, where's Ted? Yeah, sure. So, you know, but it, it's it's not like it excites me. Like, I can't wait for the next Blue Beetle film um, and they better make it or I riot, you know. It is, you know, it, it's another one of those things where, you know, we, we have this convention now that we utilize all the time. Um, and I would say on a whole, it only works like 30% of the time these days so you know um yeah uh i'm it's been such an interesting conversation we've kind of gone back and forth with things we like things we might not have liked all this stuff so where are you going to land for your ratings with blue beetle casey uh i gave this one uh three out of five beetle ships um i you know it's it's called the bug, by the way. Uh, just the saying. bug, uh, you know, whatever. <laughs> just, 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 just say it. Okay. Yeah, I, um, you know, it's, you know, a fun movie. You know, it was fine, and it was, um, it, it's getting hard with the, these superhero movies. We kind of talked about it, but they're basically they're cookie cutter anymore, and and there's not so much you could do with it, and. Um, you know, as we talked about, the family was, um, a really great part about this movie and, you know, the casting of the family and especially, uh, Jaime. Um, but yeah, I mean, it wasn't, um, th this one wasn't really even on my radar, uh, that it was coming out because I, you know, I haven't even really seen much, you know, as far as promotion for it or anything. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll see what comes in the future, but yeah, this is kind of right in the middle of a three for me. Uh, I also land on three out of five blue Tacomas. Uh, <laughs> a little bit I, on the nose, don't you think? Uh, <laughs> I might grow to like it. Uh, but I, this was just as a uh, a wink and a nod to my DC Squawcast review with my co-host Tim. If it was just the superhero aspects of this film, this would probably be a two and a half at best. Because, like you said, it is cookie cutter. Now, Casey, I would argue, says no. A superhero movie can be fresh and interesting. You just actually have to try. <laughs> like, you have to want to make something fresh, interesting, daring, different. You know, and they're not. They're, they're, the problem is, is that they still think that they can just make the same thing we've seen over and over again. And like I said, there's so much in this movie that it's like... That's Tobey Maguire Spider-Man. That's Iron Man 1. That's Iron Man 2. That's Man of Steel. That's Superman 78. Like, like it's just, you know, I just list off every everywhere I've seen this before, you know. And, but the family aspect is what gave it a three. Like, the, 
the family gave it a whole half star. And so that's how I end up with a three out of five. I'm going to go as well with three out of five scarabs. Uh, just because, you know, I, I think that this movie is above average, but just above average. I think that the film, like you said, Scott, has the family aspect, which I think does set it apart from other superhero movies in that way. So that's where uh, I think it excels. Um, the only other thing that's really done that is Miss Marvel. And yet I think that the film lacks uh, a really compelling villain. And, you know, I think... Uh, there's only so much that Sholo can do in the movie. Uh, and there are some parts of it that are just kind of like, eh, for me. And so, yeah, I mean, what's crazy about that, though, is I thought this movie was going to be a train wreck. So the fact that I'm giving it a three stars is actually pretty impressive. Because I thought coming into this, oh man, this movie is going to be terrible. Um, and so it exceeded my expectations, which is always a nice thing to have happen. And, uh, but I think that in the end, what it shows me is how discombobulated and discordant, wink, wink, DC is right now. It just, until Superman Legacy comes out, I don't think they've given us any reason to care about anything they're doing. And thankfully, this is not a train record film. It's better than Shazam 2. It's better than uh, Flash. So that's great. Uh, but, it, I, I, you know, the it only made 20-something million dollars in its opening weekend, and there's a reason for that. It, you know, the, the, this isn't going to blow anybody's socks off to the point where everybody's going to come out of it and be like, Dude, you gotta see Blue Beetle. Well, you know? that's why the B plus cinema score is there. Like that's that that means it's not gonna have word of mouth. Like, you know, everyone's too busy still seeing Barbie and Oppenheimer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, well, I thank you guys so much. This has been so much fun. You know, I I love getting a chance to talk with you guys uh, too. I think what's been fantastic about the episode here is that we have a variety of different thoughts <laughs> on the film. Like we all didn't think the same thing. And I think that makes for interesting conversation. And so uh, Casey, if people wanted to find you online, catch up with you, see what else you've got going on, where would they do that? Yeah. Well, thanks for having me back. It's always fun chatting with you guys about these things. Uh, if anybody wants to find me, I'm on letterboxd, goodreads, Instagram, and Twitter at knitting Trekkie. And then you can also find me on Facebook, uh, poking around the Babel Conference from time to time. Uh, and then you can also find me uh, doing another show on TFM with our friend Matt here, doing literary tracks, talking about the books and comics of Star Trek. And Scott, where can everybody find you? 
You can find me on X at ScottDC27 or on Vero at Scott McClellan. You can find my podcast, the DC Squadcast, wherever podcasts can be found. We're on Vero Facebook, YouTube with the entire network of shows at squadcastmedia.com. We just published our review of Blue Beetle, and we have a couple of more episodes in the can of our The Batman Scene by Scene, breaking down Matt Reeves' glorious movie, One Scene at a Time. Of course, every Every Sunday night at 9 o'clock Central Time over at the Film Junkie YouTube channel. You can join Dave and me as we discuss every episode of the DC Animated Universe on our DC Fanimated stream. This past Sunday, we literally just ended the first season of Superman, the animated series. So we'll be launching into not only the second season of Superman, the animated series, but then we're going to start the back and forth with the third season of Batman the Animated Series. That is awesome. Can't wait to see what uh, you and Tim thought of the movie, especially Tim. Uh, so I'm, I'm thinking... I know what he's going to say, but I can't wait to listen. So uh, you can find me all over social media under the name MattRushing02, no matter what they call Twitter these days, or Instagram, Letterboxd, or Vero, the places I'm most active. Of course, here on the network outside the 602 Club, you'll find me doing Literary Treks, The Orb, Warp 5, The Artificial Tango, and Saddle Up. And then on the Nerd Party Network, you'll find me with two shows. One is called Owl Post, about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series. And then Aggressive Negotiations with John Mills as we're talking about Star Wars each and every week. But thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? 